Hey folks, Cameron Riley. Before we start this episode of The Napoleon Show, I want to give a big plug for David Markham's new book, The Road to St. Helena. It's just come out in the last couple of weeks, and I read a, an early draft of this book a few months ago. I have to say it's a very exciting read. It's about what happens to Napoleon after Waterloo. And of course, it's by our own J. David Markham. Now, I've got a challenge for you. I would like to see this book hit the bestseller lists in Amazon. In, t- in the history section, I reckon we can make this the number one bestseller in the history section, but I'm going to need your help. I need all of you, when you listen to this show, to go to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast website, which is napoleon.thepodcastnetwork.com, in case you've forgotten. Click on the link in the latest blog post to David's book, order it from Amazon, and try and make it the number one best-selling book in the history section in Amazon. Do you think we can do it? Do we have the numbers? Can we pull it off? What would Napoleon do? That's what I want to ask you. Can we galvanize people? I should, I should give you like a Napoleonic speech. Audience of the show, history looks down upon you. Can you make this book a number one seller on Amazon? Your grandchildren will tell the stories about the days when you drove this book to number one. <laughs> Please, support David, support the book. I'm going to buy at least five copies and I hope you do the same. Give them to friends and family for Christmas, for birthdays, for Mother's Day for Father's Day, for Valentine's Day, any excuse, give them copies of David's book. Well, thank you. Grandchildren will remember you fondly in the annals of history. Cheers. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 44 of the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast, the one and only Napoleon Bonaparte podcast, the greatest history podcast, no, the greatest podcast in history, not just the greatest history podcast, and it's all due to the man on the other end of this call, the Honourable J. David Markham Esquire. How are you today, sir? Well, I'm I'm fine, uh, Cameron. I uh, from that introduction, I would almost think that you had been hitting my medication a little strongly. But I know that it's about eleven or twelve o'clock in the morning uh, your time, and so it it seems relatively unlikely that that that's the case. But but I thank you very much. Uh, I noticed, by the way, when Skype comes up, you know, you a person can can have some little blurb about themselves and. And yours says that you are reading in praise of slow. And it occurs to me that that's probably the story of our podcast because uh, uh, 45 issues, did you say, uh, two and a half years or so, and we're still not done. <laughs> well, in, in praise of uh, bloated, according to the email that I got from Dr. Chris Kirtley, of uh, Queensland this morning. He told me that he was trying to download our last episode, episode 43, and it was too big. So, um, and, he, and he called his um, email bloated Bonaparte, and I said to him that 
Well, we're deliberately increasing the size of the files as Napoleon's girth increases later in life. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all part of the, 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 the motif of the show. Well, I, I find that interesting because it wasn't a particularly long show, and the only the only big file we ever created was the one a video cast that we did, which of course was a huge file, and we did catch hell over that from a few folks. <laughs> if you were listening to us by a dial-up uh, connection, especially that's uh, that's grim. I mean, it took quite a while even on, on my cable uh, super fast network to to download it. But otherwise, I'm I'm surprised. Uh, others might say it's bloated because of, of, of too much content and certainly because of too much of my talking but you know <laughs> well I will, size of the file didn't seem that doesn't seem like a, that'd be a factor it's probably a bitrate thing i'll make an effort to make them smaller anyway um here we are with a very uh poignant episode of the podcast this should be we're at the uh the latter stages of the great man's life and well, um Sorry. We are, and by the way, before before you get into it, forgive the interruption. Uh, we do this every now and then, but since that we're getting toward the end, at least of of, of the linear podcast, I I just wanted to mention I've been getting a lot of emails and then comments, of course, on the website, and I I thought it might be kind of fun just to mention my first name, so no one starts getting you know nasty grams from anyone. Some of the people who who recently have have written in just just so that they know that. Whether or not we always respond quickly, we are aware of them. Uh, there's a Charles and, and, and a Peter who, who are apparently big fans. Uh, Edna, Michael, John, Andy, who's a, a brand-new listener, as probably some of these are. Uh, Eric and Helga recently wrote. And, of course, regulars, uh, especially on the podcast uh, network uh, blog itself, You know, people like Colin and Chris and Greg. People who don't always agree with us, but but we enjoy uh, you know sort of debating with. I I just want to thank those people, and of course through them, all of our listeners for having been so loyal and so faithful, uh, and and sometimes so patient when there's been you know periods of time when when we just couldn't get it done uh, for the last couple of years or two and a half years, and even though tonight we may very well finish up the linear part. I can assure you, we will we will find other things to say. But having having interrupted you, uh, uh, Cameron, forgive me, and, and and please go on. No, no, that's uh, very very uh, well said, sir. And we, you know, we we should start off every episode by by thanking everyone who listens and everyone who provides feedback. I mean, it is um, consistently uh, humbling to me the amount of positive feedback we get on this podcast. Uh, people constantly saying that. Uh, this is the the best podcast, bar none, they've ever heard, and um, you know it's 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 a, a simple uh, format that we've got, but it's it's always um, humbling to me to see that people have been enjoying the story so far. I mean, it always astounds me when I tell people, you know, just in everyday life that, that we have the amount of people that we have listening to us talk about some guy who's been dead for two hundred years. It's uh, it's astounding that so many people are taking such an interest in this. And, and I always, of course, put it down to your uh, medication. I say that uh, it's, <laughs> it's the, the magic of David's medication. No. <laughs> no it's well, I, I, I want to say that, that the, the magic of my medication may or may not be a factor, but I, I think that we've, we've done something unique uh, to podcasting, uh, although maybe somebody else is, is trying it. Uh, uh, but it's, it's, 
the interrelationship that, that you and I have developed and the friendship, and, and, and our listeners must know by now that <clears throat> we've met a couple of times and spent some wonderful time in Corsica and Paris together this summer. Uh, but it's the interaction that we have, sometimes the interaction which is is overwhelmingly uh, on, 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 on my side. You know, I, I manage to dominate more than I should sometimes. But it's not just me, and it's, it's certainly not just the medication, but it's you, and, and much bigger than either of us, it's, it's the interaction that we've developed. And, and uh, I really think from what we've been told and from, from what I just observe as, as we do it, that's the real secret to, to our success. Well, let's hope that uh, it's uh, it's not over yet. Uh, you know, I'm looking forward to, to moving on with you and doing some other projects. The biography show is fun, but um, I think we can take this format into a couple of other arenas. But, Absolutely, uh, we better, no, no question about it. We better get on with this one, or uh, the, that file size will be bigger, and Dr. Chris will be sending me more complaints. <laughs> so, uh, and, and and all those people, Charles and Peter and Edna and so forth, might start writing us. Uh, get on with uh, it, you idiots. <laughs> um, now, at the end of episode 43, we got up to, um, I think it was kind of early 1818, um, Napoleon's great friend, his, his Corsican compatriot, Cipriani, died under somewhat mysterious circumstances. His uh, British doctor, O'Meara, had been banished from the island, and the Balcombs had left the island. So that the people that Napoleon was, was closest to, that he had friendships with, were gradually being removed from him by means fair or foul. And he starts to... And, and this antagonism between him and Hudson Lowe gets stepped up a few notches, I think, as a result, doesn't it? I've, I've, I've um, been looking for a story to start off this episode with. And it was around about this time that um, Napoleon got uh, Bertrand to write a letter to... His uncle, Napoleon's uncle, uh, Cardinal Fesch. Now, of course, when we were in Ajaxio a couple of months ago, we were uh, unable to tour the Cardinal Fesch Museum because it was closed for uh, renovations, but they presented us with a lovely book, lovely big hardcover book uh, containing copies of uh, all of the work. He, Cardinal Fesch, I don't think we've spoken much about since early on in the series. Um, and after I read this letter, I might get you to remind people who Cardinal Fesch was, but... Napoleon uh, writes a letter via Bertrand saying, Every day we have been feeling the need of a priest. You are our bishop. We wish you to send us a French or Italian priest. Choose an educated man, under 40, easy to get on with, and not prejudiced under Gallican principles. He also asked for a French doctor with a good reputation and for a chef. Um, I, I found this interesting that Napoleon was asking for a priest. Now, we, we've talked a bit through the series about whether or not Napoleon was uh, a believer. Obviously, the, the revolution was decidedly, and, uh, decidedly secular. Uh, Napoleon, as people will remember, did the concordat with the, the Catholics and, and brought the Pope in, but then had a falling out again with the Pope. When he went into Egypt, he uh, instructed all of his men to uh, you know, uh, uh, at least profess that, that Allah was the one true God, and he seemed to be very savvy religious uh, in terms of appreciation of how important religion was to people, and, and perhaps some might say uh, he cynically used that as a political tool. But why do you think towards the end of his life Napoleon would be requesting uh, Cardinal Fesch to send him a priest? 
Well, I think there's at least a couple of possibilities, and I also want to, you know, reiterate what you said. It wasn't just a priest, but it was also a chef, and much more importantly, it was it was doctor into that issue here shortly. there, there's some possibility of a so-called foxhole conversion on the part of Napoleon. Uh, supposedly, you know, well, his will says that he dies in the apostate faith and so on. So it may very well be that 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 his, you know, basic upbringing, if you will, was coming to the fore. I mean, uh, the old expression: "There are no atheists in foxholes," and 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 that people, as they approach the end of death, to rediscover a religion. Uh, that's a possibility, but it's also true that he has a fairly substantial entourage there of of French, uh, presumably all of whom are Catholic and all of whom would like to have a priest. Uh, the, the 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 British are unlikely to have a priest; they're pretty much a a, a Protestant uh, uh, group of folks. Although uh, uh, there's an Irish doctor who who may have been Catholic, I, I don't recall for sure, Doctor Verling. Uh, but but he may very well just be looking out for his entourage. Uh, if, 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 if 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 members of his entourage were Catholic and 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 really wanted to be able to 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 have last rites, for example, if something were to happen to them, or uh, to to have uh, someone to confess to, uh, uh, or any anything else that a sort of generic Protestant uh, a service or uh, wouldn't wouldn't handle. Uh, you know that that would make sense that Napoleon would say, "Listen, you know these guys would would really like to practice their religion." The um, I'm taking this, by the way, from Vincent Cronin's book that we've we've talked about many times, which was probably the the most accessible book on Napoleon ever written until uh, some character called J. David Markham came along and wrote several magnificent masterpieces. Um, <laughs> Man, you have been hitting my medication hard. I can see that. Well, you know, we're getting to the end of this thing, and I, I want to butter you up so you come back and do Caesar with me. Um, oh, don't worry. You don't have to butter me up for that, my friend. So the, the rest of this story is that um, it took a year and a half before Fesh actually sent anyone uh, out there. Uh, so it was like late 1819 that a, a couple of priests arrived and um, a, a doctor, Anto Markey. But uh, of, uh, getting, sticking with the, the, the priest story, uh, Napoleon, it says, said um, the old pre- there, was, there was an old priest and a young priest who was sent out, one in his late 60s, a Corsican, and <laughs> doddering and had a stroke and was barely able to speak, and the other, a young man who had some knowledge of medicine but read and wrote with difficulty. Um, the old priest is good for nothing but saying mass, Napoleon told Bertrand. The young one is a student. It's ridiculous to call him a doctor. He studied medicine four years in Rome. He's a medical student, not a doctor. Antimarchy has done some teaching but never practiced. He may be an excellent teacher of anatomy, but Cuvier is of natural history and Berthelet of chemistry, yet still be a very bad doctor. Um, but uh, uh, he goes on to say that Napoleon had his dining room turned into a chapel and heard mass there every Sunday, remarking, I hope the Holy Father will not find fault with us. We have become Christians again. Now, I find this extraordinary and completely out of character with everything else I've read about Napoleon. Um, Taking what you said before about, you know, possible deathbed conversions, foxhole conversions, just that doesn't strike me. Napoleon just doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. Does it seem strange to you or do you buy it? 
Well, uh, both. I mean, Napoleon writes this, and I don't have any particular reason to to doubt it. Uh, and I do know this sort of thing happens. Uh, I've not studied intently Napoleon's religious beliefs uh, on Saint Helena. Uh, I, I've certainly read the Cronin uh, description that you just uh, gave, uh, but I don't find it, you know, completely absurd. Uh, people do those sorts of things. People change. And it's even conceivable that it, he's just putting up a front uh, to to make himself uh, you know, more sympathetic, uh, to make himself seem less threatening, more mainstream. Here he is, you know, going to mass just like anyone. You know, the the ogre of Corsica wouldn't necessarily, you know, make a point of going to religious uh, services. I, I can't tell you what his motivation was. I, I really can't tell you how serious he was, except that he did put it in his will. Uh, and, you know, I just I just don't know. Napoleon's personal religious beliefs, while I've certainly dealt with them on a, a modest, uh, maybe even a superficial level, uh, are, they're not something I've really analyzed carefully. I, I'd be I'd be the first to tell you. I, li- I like the, the rest of this story. He says, <clears throat> what had happened? Fesch was living in Rome, caring for Napoleon's mother. As she grew older, Madame Mare, like all her children, <coughs> save Napoleon and Pauline, became increasingly religious. So he's actually suggesting here that Napoleon didn't become increasingly religious, which is then sort of counter-evidenced uh, uh, by the... Um, the, the, the bit I read just before. But anyway, it goes on to say, yes. Madame Mayer, and to a lesser degree Fesch, had fallen under the influence of an Austrian visionary living in Rome, a certain Madame Kleinmuller. This woman claimed to see every day the Blessed Virgin. She claimed to see other things also. There had been rumours of Napoleon escaping from St. Helena, and one day Madame Kleinmuller announced to Napoleon's mother that in a vision she had actually seen Napoleon being transported out of exile by angels. Madame Mayer, whose critical faculties had weakened in old age, believed the glad tidings. So did Fesch. The Cardinal wrote to La Cassez, then in Europe, on the 31st of July 1819, Although the newspapers and the English continue to make out that Napoleon is still in St. Helena, we have reason to believe that he has left that island. Although, although we do not know where he is, nor when he will show himself, we have sufficient proof to persist in our belief. There is no doubt that the jailer of St. Helena compels Count Bertrand to write to you as though Napoleon was still his prisoner. Fesch had sent such a third-rate group of men to St. Helena because he believed there was small chance of their finding Napoleon at the end of their voyage. He actually believed he had been carried out of St. Helena by angels. Well, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) I'm... I'm not an expert on what he did or did not believe, uh, but I've, I've got to tell you, I'm not really, I'm not really buying, uh, buying that at all. So is it possible, David, that Napoleon was rescued from St. Helena by angels and uh, um, is living in Argentina now with Elvis, Marilyn, and uh, Scott Bio from Joni Loves Chachi? No, I don't think so. But but it, but it is true, and and this is also in fact found in in uh, Cronin's uh, book Napoleon uh, that Napoleon apparently you know talked about religion a lot while he was there. Uh, that he would even read the Bible uh, aloud, uh, uh, made comments on 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 the Gospels and and so on. Now whether he is doing this more out of intellectual curiosity 
or whether he is is uh, uh, doing it, uh, you know, out of some kind of religious uh, a fervor that was developing, uh, you know. But you know, you read some of the comments again. Here's here's one uh, in 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 Cronin. Uh, he, he talks about of the Gospels. He says very beautiful parables, excellent moral teaching, but but few facts. Cronin uh, uh, goes on to say facts were what, of course, mattered to Napoleon. Uh, one of the, the the comments I always liked, and I'm, I'm reminded of it now by by the direction your conversation has taken us, uh, that, that he said, and again from Cronin, uh, Jesus should have performed his miracles not in remote parts of Syria, but in front of a few whose good faith can be called in question, but in a city like Rome, in front of the whole population. And that's classic Napoleonic analysis, you know. Mm-hmm. How are you going to get the most bang for the buck? Well, it ain't going to be in some remote territory in the middle of nowhere in front of a, a, a few citizens and a few Pharisees and a couple of Romans, you know. You need to go where the action is. You need to be in the center where you will become the center of attention. Uh, and that, of course, in those days, you know, would have been a Rome without question. Yeah. Yeah, so look, uh, well, look, I just find that interesting. I mean, and you know, um, this is a man who knows that he's towards the end of his life, and um, I mean, there is obviously the the perspective that is is put forward by some historians that Napoleon was uh, increasingly ill, even you know, from during the Battle of Waterloo, was not in possession of his usual mental faculties. Um, personally, I don't, I don't believe that. I think he was as, as sharp as ever through that part of his life. But um, and I agree. If, if you look at if you look at what he did on Saint Helena, you know he's he's engaging in in, in some pretty good debates. He's reading some pretty good literature. Uh, you know he's he's clearly intellectually in control. And you only have to look at I mean the, the return from Elba and the way that he retook the throne of France. Uh, without firing a single bullet. I mean, uh, this was a guy who was very savvy then. I mean, you can't, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that within 100 days of that he had uh, lost his, uh, you know, his uh, faculties. Anyway, so we, we're, I agree. we're a few years later now. He's on Saturday. So anyway, I, I didn't want to uh, sidetrack the story. Um, we've, we've got him. It's sort of 1818, 1819 in St. Helena. What else is going on now that uh, the Balcombs are uh, gone, Cipriani's gone, Amira's gone? What happens? Well, and 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 some of this may may be a little redundant to what we've talked about before, uh, but what what really is happening is that this the pettiness of the existence uh, that Napoleon and his entourage have, uh, Lowe and his entourage have, uh, just uh, just continues uh, to 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 get worse. Uh, Napoleon, of course, is, is, is operating from a decided lack of strength. He's the prisoner, doesn't have a lot of power. Uh, most of the power, of course, is, is in Lowe's hands, at least the, the uh, technical power. Uh, and, and Lowe, because he has such power, you know, that includes the power to be lenient, the power to bend the rules, the power to interpret regulations uh, in, 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 in a more humane way, the, the power, in, in, in essence, to make Napoleon's life, and by the way, Lowe's himself's life, uh, more comfortable. Uh, but, but as I think we've already discussed, the, the uh, uh, you know, Lowe is just not willing to do that. 
uh, for example, uh, uh, the, 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 the great uh, uh, British politician Hobhouse, uh, who was a great admirer of Napoleon, sent Napoleon a book inscribed uh, to the Emperor Napoleon. Well, Lowe turns around and, and, and uses a regulation that required him to officially be called, you know, general as an excuse to, to, to take the book. Well, you know, the, the regulation had to do with what the official British policy was going to be so that Lowe and, and soldiers and, and anybody in an official capacity uh, was going to, to call him general. Uh, We've discussed that at length before. Uh, you know, I think it sucked, but, but, but whatever. It was an official thing. This was a private gift from, by the way, a distinguished British citizen and, and lord, you know, uh, and, and who would not really have been bound by this essentially military uh, regulation. Uh, and at any rate, because who Hobhouse was, Lowe should have said, wait a minute, I'm not going to mess with this guy, and let the book gone through. No one would have, you know, cared. But Lowe seizes the book, makes a very big deal uh, over it. And that's the kind of, of pettiness. And I, I, I think I told you uh, last time, but again, I, I, I'm not sure, uh, that the British began to expect Napoleon to, to help pay for his own imprisonment. Now, he theoretically has no income. Of course, he's brought a huge amount of material with him. Uh, so... Napoleon says, fine, I will take some of my sterling silver and put it for sale locally. Well, this is humiliating, and the, the, the press gets hold of this, and so they, they, stop, uh, they stop with that. Uh, he, he gets out. Uh, they, they run out of wood for the fireplaces, and so Napoleon starts to burn you know, some, some furniture. And I'm sitting here as a collector of Napoleonic antiques saying, oh, my God, not the Empire furniture. Let's hope it was some local furniture. I really don't know what it was. But, but you know, the word gets out to, uh, to, to, to Europe and, 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 indeed, England. And as I write in one of my books, the, the ogre uh, was quickly becoming the martyr. Uh, Napoleon's popularity uh, really was increasing, and the British uh, were, were, were being uh, – looked upon rather askance for this treatment, but Sir Hudson Lowe has no clue. He doesn't understand that he is busy making Napoleon no longer the ogre of Corsica, but the martyr uh, of St. Helena. Uh, and, and I think I've also mentioned, but it's worth repeating, that <clears throat> Lowe is absolutely positive. Some would say obsessed with the idea that Napoleon's going to escape. Now, I explained, I know I talked about this before, I explained, you couldn't sneak up on St. Helena unless you had a submarine, which they, of course, did not have in those days. Uh, any ship of any size is going to be seen a week or more in advance uh, by the lookouts. So there's not a prayer that a ship will approach the island. Any ship that comes into the harbor, and by the way, the nature of St. Helena is you really have to come into the harbor, uh, can be guarded 24-7 by, by a dozen, you know, grenadiers, whatever you want to make sure nobody sneaks on or off. Uh, Napoleon can be watched extra careful. You know, there's all sorts of ways that you can make sure Napoleon is, is not going uh, to escape. But, but Lowe goes way beyond. 
for example, uh, in one of my books, uh, I mentioned there was someone sent Napoleon a bust of of, of his son, the, the the king of Rome, and and Lo, uh, you know, wouldn't let Napoleon have it because he was convinced that somehow inside this bust there was a hidden message. I think in that case he finally did let Napoleon have it, but of course by then the word gets out because you know this stuff is not secret. And and Lowe's reputation takes a you know yet another another uh, hit, uh, so you have you have that kind of thing uh, going on. You you also have medical issues going on. Everybody, including by the way, to the credit, Lowe and the British realized that it was absolutely essential that Napoleon have a good uh, doctor to, to, to see to it uh, that, that his health, Napoleon's health, was, was going to be taken care of. Oh, I, let, me, let me go back just a little bit. Uh, the, the obsession, shall we say, that Lowe had with making sure that Napoleon was not going to escape led to a a demand that napoleon be observed uh every day somebody was assigned to see to it that they could actually report that napoleon was was there okay uh napoleon was was of course restricted in and how far away from his house he could go but this idea that a member of Lowe's staff had to make a personal sighting to assure him that Napoleon had not escaped, first of all, was probably impossible. But Lowe did what he could. And, of course, Napoleon refused to cooperate. And the entire affair became a, a cat-and-mouse game with Napoleon less and less likely to even come out of his house. Now, Parenthetically, let me point out that if you are stuck inside all day long for whatever reason, you're not getting signed, you're not getting really good exercise, uh, your, 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 your health is going to suffer, your mental health is going to suffer, and your physical health. Uh, so Napoleon would hardly ever come outside. So Napoleon and his staff, and of course Lowe and his staff, uh, began to, to become engaged in this absurdly petty level of bickering and and game playing i suppose you could say uh they 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 really got involved in in what i i, I say in, in in my book on dr verling a a a cat and mouse game where napoleon becomes less and less uh, interested in in uh, emerging from his home uh, clearly, of course, his health is going to suffer. He's not getting very much exercise. He's not getting any sun. Uh, he's not having the kind of uh, more general social interaction that, that he would have if he was able to to get out. Uh, this this battle of wills, this, this scheming and bickering uh, was was ridiculous. And if you want to get a good idea of that, uh, go to the Sir Hudson Lowe papers at the British Library. When I did my book, uh, Napoleon and Dr. Verling on St. Helena, one of my major sources of information uh, for that was uh, the, the, the low papers. And by the way, many of the 
the letters that I reference here and many, many more I have uh, transcribed and reproduced in in that book, along with Dr. Verling's journal, and we'll talk about Dr. Verling later on. Uh, but these Lowe papers provide a, a wonderful mirror of Lowe's obsession with maintaining a visual contact with Napoleon. He assigned staff to make an effort to see Napoleon once a day. If you could see him once a day, that was fine, because that meant he hadn't left the island. You know, if, if he's not there, you can't see him that day, then, you know, all hell might break loose. The, the, the duty officer who generally had that uh, assignment was named, a, a, a captain named Nichols, Captain Nichols. And there's all sorts of letters from Captain Nichols to Sir Hudson Lowe reporting I saw Napoleon. I didn't see Napoleon. I think I heard Napoleon. I fancy he is in his bath. I mean, notes would fly back and forth several times a day. I mean, there were couriers running all over the island taking letters and notes back and forth from from one person uh, to another. Uh, Napoleon, I may have said said already, would take his exercise walking in the billiard room. You know, think about getting your exercise walking around a small room in really uh, bad weather here uh, in the Pacific Northwest, of which we have a lot in the winter. I've been known to take my hour-long daily walk in a shopping mall. It's a big shopping mall with lots and lots of people, although with our economy, fewer people now. Lots of interesting things to look at, you know. Uh, people watching and interesting stuff in the stores and so on. And even even that gets to be boring after four or five laps around this thing. Well, you can imagine how awful it would be to be, you know, in a, what, a 15 by 20 room or whatever size this thing was, a feat that would be, uh, and, uh, and get your exercise, you know, walking around uh, that room. Now, there was an episode in 1819, for example, where, uh, Captain Nichols appeared to be prepared to literally break down the door uh, in order to to make sure he could confront and therefore see uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, the staff intervened. They worked on an arrangement where where Captain Nichols could peek through the window and see Napoleon sitting in his bath. Well, come on, folks. That's absolutely absurd and by the way it's demeaning now i'm willing to to perfectly admit i should say i'm perfectly willing to admit sorry that napoleon could have been a little less petty sometimes that napoleon could have been more willing to work something out i don't absolve napoleon from his share of these difficulties but he has less of a share than sir hudson lowe because he has a lot less power, you know, other than uh, Napoleon, you know, has, you know, little power. And Lowe needed to realize that he was dealing with a man who had been the master of Europe. He had been the emperor of the French, the, the king of Rome, the protector of the confederation of the Rhine. He had been a person who, who could not only control a great deal of Europe, but, you know, to whom an awful lot of people in Europe truly looked up, respected and admired. Uh, and okay. now here he is. Yeah. No, sorry. I mean, I, 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 I'm fascinated by this. I mean, really, what was Napoleon's problem? I mean, obviously, Lowe had been causing difficulties, but this whole deal about 
needing to be cited. What did Napoleon care? I mean, this is a guy who spent his entire life on the battlefield, out in the open. I can't imagine why he would choose to stay locked up inside this dank little house. I mean, well, it was a question of it was a question of privacy. It was a question of dignity. It was a question of you know, if you're inviting me to social events and we have a very nice relationship and, and you treat me the way I was treated when I first arrived here, you give me the kind of freedoms that I had at the Briars, uh, of course you're going to see me. But when you restrict my every movement, when you make it very difficult for me to do much more than go work in my garden, and then you, you know, give me this blather about how I have to be seen every day, you know, that's just too much to take. Now, do I think Napoleon should have swallowed his pride and said, okay, fine, I'll go, you know, walk around the yard some. I'll go work in the garden and you can see me. Yeah, if if I was there as one of Napoleon's advisors, that's what I would have advised him to do. And by the way, uh, Napoleon's staff did advise him to do that kind of thing, just as we'll see later on. Excuse me, they advised him to see Dr. Berling and do, do some other things. And Napoleon doesn't always accept the advice of his staff, which is, after all, you know, his prerogative. So like I said a while ago, of course, Napoleon could have reacted better to all this. I understand that. And, and your point is, is well taken. But I think the, the, the burden of proof is on the person who has the real power, who, who needs to find a way to achieve what he really truly needs to achieve without forcing Napoleon, in this case, into a humiliating position. And, and, and that's why I put more of the blame for this on Sir Hudson Lowe. But again, yes, Napoleon, at least, you know, standing back as we are, you know, almost 200 years later, sure, he could have responded better. He could have maybe, you know, gone an extra step as well. I, I don't deny that. Do you think part of it was him trying to... I mean, it's almost like um, a, a prisoner in modern times going on a hunger strike in order to make a statement, to arouse sympathy in people who are following their uh, their case. Do you think he was doing this in terms of uh, a, a protest, not just uh, you know directed at, at Hudson Lowe, but perhaps a protest for the the broader stage, the world stage? Oh, I don't doubt that for a moment. I, I really think this is all happening on several levels. I, I do believe that at the most basic level that Napoleon is reacting to his heartfelt outrage at his treatment. He really believes that, listen, you have put me on this godforsaken island, and here I am, I, I can't escape. I mean, give me a break. There's no way I can get off of this island. Certain modern movies, you know, notwithstanding, The Emperor's New Clothes and that sort of thing. Uh, and given that fact, why don't you treat me with the kind of respect that you would have treated any of the Louis, for example, who ended up in your control? any of the other heads of state, why it's bad enough you sent me here instead of allowing me to retire in England. But then once I'm here and completely under your control, why are you not treating me with some level of dignity beyond what you have? 
But you're absolutely correct. There are other levels to this as well. Uh, most notably, uh, Napoleon, the entire time he is on St. Helena, uh, is very concerned about his his image abroad, his legacy in terms of how history will see him, but also how people will see him now. And he realizes that it, it will not take much to have him be seen by, by much of Europe as a figure of pathos rather than of hatred. Even in, in Great Britain, there are substantial numbers of people who are very fond of Napoleon and who are very unhappy with his uh, treatment, Hobhouse uh, just being you know, one of the major leaders of that movement. So clearly Napoleon knows if he sort of makes a stand and says, no, I will not succumb to this absurd requirement that I be seen every day. I will force you to report uh, that, that you've seen me in the bath. Uh, then, then yes, uh, that will help him in his sort of public image. And Napoleon, you will recall throughout our 40-plus episodes together, my friend, uh, if nothing else, Napoleon, in addition to being a great military commander, is a masterful politician. He understands politics. He understands people. He knows how to develop an image, whether it's the printing of engravings, the minting of, of medallions, or in this case, the creation of an image of pathos that will resound in, in an awful lot of Europe. Speaking of uh, the way that he was <clears throat> to be remembered during this period, I've, I've got a, a terrific little story here that um, amuses me no end. This is from, um, I'm reading this from your good friend Ben Weeder's uh, book, The Murder of Napoleon, Ben Weeder and David Hapgood. And uh, we, we had discussed earlier on, I think in the last episode, about some of the tensions amongst Napoleon's staff, his entourage, uh, particularly between Montholon and Gourgaud. And uh, <laughs> Gourgaud, sort of during around this period, 18, um, 18, 18, 19, left the household. And um, I, I would like, if I may, to tell this story. Please do. Please do, because I know the story and it's excellent. You can take a break and have a drink. Um, I'm doing that already. So it, it says that there was, a, there was a, a, a year of increasing bitterness between Gorgo, who was – Young, he was very hot-tempered. He was um, very um, liked to, to put his opinion forward. Was was quite antagonistic, and he had been quarrelling a lot with the Montholons. And he, in fact, at one stage, he was threatening um, Montholon with a duel. And it, it sort of, you know, poisoned the air of the household, made everybody, including Napoleon, quite exasperated. And. Uh, during this time, Gorgot started basically accusing Napoleon of having an affair with Montholon's wife, Albine. And I think we've mentioned this briefly before, but he was, he was very, apparently, very upfront with his accusations. And um, anyway, so there was this uh, – Montholon was uh, a little bit of a um, brown nose, I think we would say. He wore the brown <laughs> lipstick. And um, Napoleon, <laughs> Napoleon knew this and apparently said to Gorgo at one stage, after all, I only like people who are useful to me and as long as they are useful. What do I care what they think? I only pay attention to what they say to me. If they betray me, they will only be doing what many others have done. Um, but then Gorgo kept complaining that he had no woman while Montholon and Bertrand had wives and Napoleon said, bah, women, when you don't think about them, you don't need them. Be like me. 
which um, I thought was interesting. But then, <laughs> yes, I interesting is is one word. <laughs> Gogo though obviously didn't think that Napoleon did, had no women. He thought that Albine de Montholon was Napoleon's mistress, and he let Napoleon know what he thought. In his diary, he recorded his evidence for that belief. On one occasion, he surprised Albine going to visit Napoleon, who was not dressed in his bedroom. When Gourgaud told this to her husband, Montholon stammered, I don't know, I'm not saying no. Another time, when Montholon was sent out while Albine visited Napoleon in his bath, Gourgaud said to him, that's nice, you're chased out when she comes in. Napoleon's relationship with the attractive, accommodating Albine infuriated the, je- infuriated the jealous Gourgaud. Let the emperor have mistresses if he likes, but I am not going to humiliate myself before them. As for Albine's husband, Gorgo wrote, Poor Montholon, what role are you playing? The end came at a stormy scene in early February. Napoleon sent for Gorgo, who found him in the billiard room playing chess with Bertrand. What, after all, do you want? Napoleon asked. Gorgo said once more that he felt mistreated and wanted to leave. Gorgo appealed to Bertrand for support, but the engineer stood leaning against the wall and, as usual, said nothing. The issue was always Montholon. Napoleon said he would treat the Montholons as he pleased and added, If I were to go to bed with her, what would be wrong with that? Gorgot said he had supposed his majesty's taste was not that depraved. Napoleon then told him to leave. Giving bad health (laughs) as the reason, Gorgot left St. Helena the following month, but not before telling the foreign commissioners in Jamestown that Napoleon could escape any time he wanted to, but preferred captivity to freedom in America. And, of course... We haven't really touched on that yet, but the question of whether or not Napoleon was slowly being poisoned during his stay on St. Helena is something that uh, is always a matter of debate between historians. Um, Of course, your your good friend Ben Weeder is one of the main advocates for the poisoning theory and and has written uh, this book uh, several years ago now, but with, with a lot of evidence, and every year... Um, you know, there's there's this debate. Uh, like a couple of times a year, I get people sending me emails with links to <laughs> news articles from around the world where scientists say conclusively Napoleon definitely wasn't poisoned. And then invariably within a month, there's another news article from another batch of scientists coming out that's saying there is conclusive evidence that Napoleon was poisoned. But well, um, that's that that's absolutely true. And by the way, the most recent book that Ben Weeder uh, has, has written on the subject is called "Assassination at Saint Helena Revisited." Uh, you're you're making reference to sort of the the, the classic first, the the the, uh, the Hapgood uh, and Weeder book. Uh, then he wrote "Assassination at, at Saint Helena," and then some years later, <coughs> he wrote "Assassination at, at Saint Helena Revisited," which is his most recent. <coughs> excuse me, uh, his most recent uh, book on the subject, and I highly recommend it as, as absolutely essential reading for anyone who, who wants to get the overall story uh, on, on the assassination, but, but also on, on Napoleon on St. Helena. It's, 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 it's an extraordinarily well-done book. Uh, and, and, and if you've not read it yet, uh, Cameron, I urge you to do so. Yeah, I'm pretty, uh, sure, I, I'm pretty sure I have got that. I have read that, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think you probably have. Uh, you've stepped a little bit ahead here uh, on 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 you know Napoleon's death, in that we do want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the the medical follies. Uh, and looking at the time, it may very well be that we will please our listeners and not actually finish uh, uh, tonight and have yet another episode in our in our linear. Uh, 
exploration uh, since after some technical difficulties that we had, we're we're already at at, at 20 minutes. So uh, uh, we we may have done what we oftentimes do, grossly underestimated just how long we will babble on, even though we've never actually been to Iraq. Bada bing, bada boom, you know. Babylon. Never mind. Oh, uh, oh, oh. That's pretty pathetic, I know. But then oh. again, I'm rather noted for some pretty pathetic humor and, uh, from time to time. <laughs> Ask but, any of my students. Yeah, and, and fortunately for the audience, I didn't record all of the uh, jokes you were making before we started this that were uh, the bad puns that I was getting. <laughs> I uh, vaguely recall making some bad puns, but yes. <laughs> Well, no, I, look, getting back to the poisoning story, I think it's interesting to note that while all of this stuff is going on with Hudson Lowe, it is quite probable that Napoleon was being slowly murdered by uh, uh, people in his own, or at least a person, in his own uh, staff, and not, a, as, as you would assume uh, initially, by the British. Well, actually, that's that. That there, there, there's two issues here. One is is he poisoned, and and two is is uh, uh, you know who and why. Uh, the, the bottom line for the poisoning, and 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 by the way, I support my friend Ben Weeder on this, and 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 people need to be aware of that. Uh, I've I've been known to to be skeptical of any number of theories, and I started out somewhat skeptical of this theory as well. My very deep friendship with Ben, notwithstanding, uh, but but he has convinced me. the The evidence has convinced me, and and I and I really believe that there's an overwhelming likelihood. Now, I I never will say, and 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 I imagine Ben wishes I would, and others might, but but I'll never say it's absolutely positive because you know when you're looking at stuff this far back and and looking at at, at evidence uh, of various kinds. Uh, there's very little in the way of 100% reality. Uh, but I think there's a very, very, very high likelihood uh, that, that, in fact, Ben Weider is absolutely correct and, 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 and that uh, Napoleon uh, was poisoned. Uh, and, and what basically happened by looking at, at the hair segments uh, that we know were of Napoleon and, and other evidence showing uh, a periodic ingestation uh, of arsenic. Now, Napoleon was not uh, uh, poisoned by the arsenic itself, but the arsenic would be given to him, uh, and, 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 and I, I didn't know we were going to talk about this tonight, so there's some other evidence that I've had access to recently uh, suggesting that the rat poison that was brought there was, was the source of a lot of this, uh, but that the, the, uh, the, 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 the arsenic would weaken Napoleon, making it appear like the climate was what was actually doing him in. And then uh, when the moment arrived, the poisoner would administer other substances which became toxic and, and would actually kill Napoleon. Uh, this is a very common way of poisoning people at the time, uh, by the way. Uh, and, and there's all sorts of evidence to, to suggest that, in fact, this is what happened. Uh, not the least of which is that the autopsy but was done under suspicious circumstances, and not everybody would sign it. Uh, uh, that uh, uh, Napoleon didn't show the symptoms of stomach cancer, which was always given as was what actually killed him, and 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 so it goes. And if you want, we can do a separate issue or, 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 or uh, 
a, a separate uh, a session on this, or or if you like, we can just you know call this enough, and that may be fine. Uh, well, I, then the next. I, go ahead. I was going to say, look, I, I think we probably do have room to do an entire episode on this at some stage, but I just thought while we're telling the linear story, the suggestion that, and we haven't stated this yet, but that Count de Montholon, it is um, suggested, I think, by Ben Weeder, was probably the most likely candidate to have been uh, slowly poisoning Napoleon, possibly by putting this arsenic or rat poison into his wine in very small amounts. While all of this is happening, while you know he's, he's going through these, this, this dispute with Hudson Lowe, He's being slowly poisoned to death in the background. Now, you, now we talked before about his uh, mental faculty and his physical health during Waterloo, and, and I questioned you know, the, his, his mental state if he did, in fact, convert to Christianity in the last years of his life um, because it was so out of character for him based on what we know, not because that in and alone makes you mentally deficient, although that's a topic for another podcast. Um, uh, I'm staying out of that one. <laughs> and if people want to hear more about my views on that, you can listen to my G'day World podcast where I've recently interviewed a couple of theologians. But anyway, well, let's, let's continue. Um, but if he's being poisoned, I mean, this, you know, any poisoning like arsenic in your system is going to have a dramatic effect, not just on your physical health, obviously, but on your, your mental and your emotional health as well. I mean, the, the body and the brain are obviously all connected. And if you've got this god-awful poison in your system, it's going to affect you in all of those areas. And quite possibly, well, you could draw the conclusion that you know Napoleon's uh, behavior was being affected by the poison in his system, if in fact that theory is uh, indeed correct. Well, that, that's, that's certainly true on St. Helena. Of course, he, get, he, he does start to get sick and, 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 and in pretty bad shape toward, toward the end. Now, I don't agree with those people and I and I think Ben is one and and and, and again I, I have all the, the the respect in the world for Ben and he, uh, a great deal of affection for him as a friend but I really don't believe that Napoleon was being poisoned on St Helena or rather excuse me on at Waterloo and, and some other times uh although anything is possible and, I, and I've hardly you know developed specific evidence to the contrary uh but uh uh I think that uh uh, there's very little question that Napoleon was 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 poisoned, and and I'm not going to let us sneak past this without giving one of the my my favorite little lines in 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 the Napoleon for Dummies, uh, which I'm sure you've all read. Uh, but uh, you know I'm a great James Bond fan. I, I watch all the movies, and when I was very young, I I read all of the books. Believe it or not, yes, I actually was very young once. Uh, right about the time they came out, sad to say, back in the '60s, but but uh, or '50s or whenever it was. But the uh, there's a a a a classic uh, scene in 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 one of the episodes that I don't recall which one, uh, where someone had had you know threatened you know or tried to kill uh, James Bond, and Bond goes for him, his 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 boss, you know, at uh, MI5 or whatever it is, and. And uh, uh, Bond says, "Well, but but, sir, who would want to kill me?" And 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 the reply, which I consider a classic, was something like it. I didn't get the precise quote. Of what do you mean, jealous husbands, outraged chefs? The the list is endless, you know. 
Uh, it's kind of like uh, yeah. it's kind of like the list of people after both of us. I, I think. Well, I think so. Well, you know, I'd, I'd like to think it's jealous husbands, but it's probably more likely outraged chefs uh, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and and possibly outraged historians who, and certainly outraged British historians who can't believe this, this stuff we come up with. Uh, but you know, uh, you know, they, they all sound fun to to one extent or another. And, you know, a lot of folks think it would be the British, and, and I'm not so sure we're going to do a, a separate episode at this point, but the British would be the last people who would want Napoleon dead. Napoleon was their ace in the hole. If Louis XVIII gets, gets out of control, then, you know, they could always threaten to, you know, we, there's no reason for us to keep Napoleon. You know, he was right all along. He's a prisoner of war. He should be released, et cetera, et cetera. And if Napoleon's back on the scene, the Bourbons may have a problem. So although there was certain embarrassment and difficulty and some mild expense keeping Napoleon and his entourage there on the island of Santa Helene, uh, I really believe firmly that the British were quite happy to have control over a very live and therefore very threatening uh, Napoleon. I mean, I don't know if Hudson Lowe understood any of that, but I think I think the the people in Whitehall, the the people in in London, certainly did if they used Whitehall in those days. Uh, but the French, on the other hand, the the Louis Louis the Eighteenth, you know, the Bourbons, they would be happy to have Napoleon gone. The last thing they wanted was a resurgence of any movement led by even an aging Napoleon Bonaparte uh, or a movement, you know, based on the premise that we need to release Napoleon, that we need to bring him back, even is still in, in, in exile. Uh, so if you really think about it from a geopolitical standpoint, the only group, well, maybe, maybe the Prussians, maybe Blucher, but I think Blucher was dead by then. So, so maybe the Prussians, but but most importantly, the French would want Napoleon uh, dead. Because remember, if he comes back, he he still has lots of people in France who miss him. He has a significant number of people in England who might be able to somehow block the government from yet again going after him. Uh, he still has... A father-in-law in Austria, he still has an old friend in, in, in Russia. And do I think that any of them would have rallied to his cause? No, probably not. But but the point is, there's at least a theoretical danger there. And, and the big danger, of course, would be to the government of France. So if you look for a villain, if you look for somebody who would want him dead, you would have to think it would be uh, Louis XVIII. But if we and, if we add to that this suggestion that it was Montholon that was doing the poisoning as an agent for the Bourbons, and Napoleon supposedly having an affair with Montholon's wife, or at least sleeping with Montholon's wife, it, it may well have been out in the open. It, we end up with this really bizarre Hitchcockian days of our lives kind of love triangle: Napoleon sleeping with Albine de Montholon while her husband's poisoning Napoleon. Is he offering up his wife as a means of continuing his stay on the island so he can finish the task? Was she was she part of the deal? Did she know what was going on? You know, was she part and part? Was she poisoning Napoleon? Would she sleep with him and then put poison in his wine? I mean, it's it's kind of this really bizarre Hollywood style. 
you know, plot scenario. Well, well, it is, and I'm willing to play Napoleon if they ever make a movie of that. You want to be poisoned to death? Well, oh, no, I want, to sleep with, right. I want to sleep with Albine Muntla. <laughs> Barbara's not in the room, obviously, at the moment, no. Clearly not, and I don't I, – if I recall correctly looking at pictures of Albine I'm not so, or paintings, I'm not so sure I would, but that's none of that point. That's just being silly. Uh, first of all, yes, he was, and, and in that kind of a situation, it had to have been fairly open. I mean, you couldn't keep secrets in a little tight-knit group like that. Uh, so, uh, and, and in fact, she gets pregnant, and, and, and the, the, the boy apparently looks a great deal like Napoleon. I, I'm not sure. Again, I'm not an expert on, on that aspect, but as far as I know, there's very few historians who would question uh, that that relationship wasn't going on. You can't blame Napoleon. You can't necessarily blame Albine because she has a chance to sleep with one of the greatest figures in history. Uh, I don't know what her relationship with Montholon was like. I very seriously doubt, by the way, that she was doing any poisoning. Uh, whether Montholon put up with it because he wanted to stay on the island, whether he put up with it because he was loyal to Napoleon and understood Napoleon had needs and was willing to allow his wife to, to provide, you know, release for some of those needs. Uh, that's, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, I've not read enough of Montholon's memoirs to know if he talks at all about that. I very seriously doubt that he does. Uh, I always hate to disillusion our listeners that I don't know absolutely everything about every aspect of Napoleon uh, and, 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 you know, the precise, you know, three-way nature here, as you suggest, uh, I'm not an absolute expert on, but I do believe that the outline I've given is, 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 is really, uh, uh, quite, uh, accurate, uh, we should also suggest that Napoleon um, suspected that the, the, the English were going the English were going to try and uh, slowly poison him. Oh sure, he, no, the, 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 he didn't see, at least in what he wrote, the geopolitical elements that I've suggested to you. Uh, he thought that the British, anxious to be rid of the whole mess, uh, would would try to slowly poison him. So they would not be blamed for it, but would be rid of him. Because, of course, all his career, it wasn't the French that were his enemies, not even the Bourbons, who were mostly out of the picture, except for a few assassination attempts. But it was the British. So it's, it's, it's reasonable that he would have assumed that it would be the British who were trying to do him in. Yeah, but, you know, so anyway, just... In terms of the, I didn't want to interrupt your, your, your storyline there, but just in terms of this poisoning thing, I don't think we need to go into all the details of the evidence. But just the suggestion that member, a member of his own household, was slowly murdering him while all of this was going on, and you know, I'm assuming that the British didn't know about it. Uh, it would have been obviously a very tightly kept secret. You can imagine that uh, you know, it was a, a secret mission that Montholond was sent on with the promise of great reward, perhaps. But um, you know, just, just fascinating, all of the different angles that were happening in there, in a, as you said, a very small household on a very small island. Uh, well, sure. With the I mean, Mon- in history. Montholon was in charge of the wine, which would be an obvious you know, way to administer a poison. Uh, 
Montalon had ingratiated himself uh, to Napoleon. It had been a little strange that Montalon was even part of the entourage because unlike the others, he basically was not close to Napoleon and was sort of a Johnny-come-lately in, 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 in a lot of ways. And yet Napoleon, in his will, left Montalon more money uh, than, than he left anyone else. Uh, later on, Montalon squanders the money. The, 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 the French government gives him more. I mean, it, the story goes on, and I won't, I won't get into that kind of a detail right now. But, uh, you know, Montalon's a pretty shady character and a rather fascinating character. His memoirs, admittedly, like a lot of memoirs, are, are, are very self-serving, although I, I will use them from time to time if I can collaborate, you know, what, what they've said, you know, by looking at what somebody else has to say. Uh, and there's no question that he, that he served Napoleon well on some levels, but he, he served Napoleon well while, in my opinion and in the opinion of many, he was poisoning Napoleon uh, at the behest of the French government. And, you know, when we, you know, I mentioned before reading from Weider's book that Montholon was uh, brown nosing with Napoleon. He was very um, obsequious and was uh, always making sure he was in Napoleon's good graces, which could have been just, you know, simply trying to do a good job, or it could have been perfidious. And, um, you know, I, I love the idea. I mean, it's kind of in the same way that I love uh, the idea of Talleyrand, of this, this guy <laughs> who was just, you know, purely. This smiling assassin, you know, who on one hand was pretending to be Napoleon's obsequious servant, um, but on the other hand was uh, slowly po- it, it's it's Shakespeareesque, man. It, it's it's um, Iago, you know. It's it's of it's that caliber of a story. It's incredibly um, evil and and uh, calculating, if in fact it is true. Well, you know. In my opinion, it's 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 true. Is it evil and calculating? Of course. Anytime you're going to assassinate somebody over a long period of time, it's evil and calculating. That's sort of by uh, by by definition. But a lot of this might not ever have happened had Napoleon received the kind of medical care that he deserved. And next time, we will talk about the incredible medical follies that take place over Napoleon's medical care. We'll discuss Napoleon's death, and then we will discuss his triumphant return to Paris. (laughs) 